Good afternoon. Welcome aboard. Thanks for joining us today. If you're one of the uh, hearty people who showed up for the last webinar before the end of the year and you said, you know, I'm going to take a break uh, from shopping on Amazon uh, for all of my uh, last minute Christmas gifts. And you said, I'm going to be here. I'm going to learn a little thing or two about New York workers' compensation. What changed in 2023? What are the important decisions we're looking at? And what's going to be different in 2024? So thanks for joining me here today. Uh, I'm, let's dive in um, to today's topic, which is a year in review of our decisions. So we're going to start with a quick look back, talk a little bit about what changed at Lois Law Firm. Um, then I'm going to talk about some notable case law results. And you know what? While I'm talking about this, why don't I also put, add a handout uh, to this um, webinar? And just give me one sec. I'm adding that handout right now, which is a copy of all of the decisions that I'm going to talk about today. So here it is. Open that. And it should be uploaded. Okay, so all the cases that we're going to look at today, um, you now have a copy of them in the handouts. We're going to talk about what's different. Um, statutory changes that we know are going to happen in 2024. And then I'm going to do some predictions. I'm going to talk a little bit about what I think is going to happen after 2024 or uh, make some sort of far out there predictions. And you can kind of compare and say, hey, how, how close did Greg get uh, to what actually happened? So uh, let's move on. Let's talk, talk quickly about our outlook here at Lois. Our goal is to get you in control of these workers' compensation cases to help you uh, do that. Um, look, if you are an employer and you've got a return to work program, you're ahead of the game. Uh, if you're not, at least being decisive about our cases, my goal is to explain how the judicial system works and what the biases are that we have to overcome here. Uh, of course, these webinars focus on practical ways to reduce exposure. And our our focus here at Lois is always to focus on case closures and make sure we're defending from day one. That's our firm mission. Uh, we want to be the go-to firm for the top employers and carriers. And we also want to be the best place to work. So our mission is taking control and staying control of that New York workers' compensation case. And we do this in a unique way. We're a value-based firm. And what I care about is the values of creativity, advocacy, professionalism, and service, and it's my belief that if we focus all our, our case handling with those values in hand, uh, we're going to get the best outcomes uh, for our clients. Uh, so what happened this year? Well, uh, looking back at the year, uh, we had kind of a crazy year at Lois Law Firm. Uh, we grew a lot this year to meet our client demands. We're now more than 50 attorneys. And our New Jersey practice group actually saw the biggest growth this year. We actually doubled in size. Uh, we now are six attorneys in that uh, practice group. So uh, of all of our, our foreign practice groups, our Jersey group grew the most and seems to be continuing to grow the fastest in the firm this year. So that's kind of exciting and not something I expected. New Jersey uh, case growth, meaning cases or new cases filed before the Division of Workers' Compensation, has actually been declining uh, for the last 10 years but our practice here at Lois seems to be growing. And a lot of that is driven by our defense of medical provider claims. Uh, other things that happened this year that were fun, we opened uh, Lois Lab, which is our collaboration and training center, uh, which is fun for us because now we can finally have firm-wide meetings. Uh, we have more than 120 employees. So having one place we can all meet and do workshops and do training together 
Uh, so we opened a 5,000 square foot training center this year called Lois Lab. And that coincided with us gaining um, accreditation. We are now a continuing legal education provider. So we are now training attorneys and judges. Uh, by the way, just our own uh, attorneys and judges that are uh, judges in the mediation programs uh, on workers' compensation law. So one of the fun benefits of doing that is our attorneys working here uh, are earning their CLE credit. And we're going to be opening that up and offering our CLE classes to our clients. Uh, the first time we'll be doing that is on January 22nd. The other thing that happened that's exciting for us as an organization is, uh, excuse me, opening a second location in Manhattan, uh, 140 Broadway, the 22nd floor. Uh, we're building out a flagship location, uh, really up to the lowest standard uh, in terms of fit and finish. And we're going to open that. We've already opened it, but we're going to open that officially in January and invite our clients in for a grand opening celebration. Uh, really fun, great location. Um, and they, we already have a midtown location. And now we have a downtown location. Uh, so more on that. Uh, and if you're a client, you'll be getting invited to our grand opening party. Working at Lois, um, this year we delivered more than 500 hours of CLE credits to our attorneys. Um, we increased all of our paid time off for new employees. We added paid sick and safety time of eight days per year so that our employees would not have to use up their vacation time when they're sick. And we improved our employee uh, handbook as well. In the community, we held our first ever gratitude night uh, in November for the firm vendors and consultants and delivery people. We invited uh, more than 50 of our vendors and consultants. And this is everything from court reporting services to subpoena process servers, uh, uh, you know, our, our search partners. We invited our, in, our surveillance vendors. So a lot of our vendors that we really rely on. But we also invited some of our firm consultants. Um, some of, we have two sets of attorneys, one who just does real estate deals for us. We invited them and we had our benefits and health insurance brokers there. Uh, it was just really cool to bring in this community of the 50 plus people. Um, who really help our firm succeed and to show some gratitude to them. So if you're a small business and you're listening to this and you're not doing that, uh, you should really be doing it because it was a really cool event. Um, and, you know, we gave out some awards to our top vendors and just a really nice way to put names and faces together with, you know, our vendors and our consultants. Those are really our partners in a lot of ways. And uh, it was really great uh, to do that. Um, this year, in our, our charitable initiative called Lois Love, we gave away almost $100,000 to charity this year. And the, the keystone of that was the game night that we held for the Challenged Athletes Foundation, uh, where we rented out an indoor amusement center and we brought in the Challenged Athletes, which are all children pre predominantly um, with congenital or acquired disabilities that want to participate in sports. And just a really great event for a family-friendly event that you know, a lot of Lois family members came to at meeting our, our team members and staff members and also to bring in the uh, challenged athletes. It just was a really cool event to sponsor. So that was our year. A pretty great year this year overall as we look back. And I hope your year was great, too, as you look forward. Uh, let's take a look at some notable results, some interesting or, um, you know, unique case law decisions that we got. And I wanted to point out a little bit of a grab bag here. So. I, I tried to bring in some cases that are kind of all over the place. So uh, I on purpose didn't focus on any one specific type of case. 
Uh, I really wanted to sort of highlight the different kind of approaches that we're taking and um, sort of like pick and choose uh, an interesting result from each area. So let's dive in there. Um, and again, these are going to be all New York results. Um, in your handout today is the Boytel versus Nebraska land case, which is such an interesting and strange case. And honestly, it's one of those things where you have to say, like, this could only happen in workers' compensation. This is someone who had an internal abscess in their um, uh, intestines. They had an ingrown hair, actually, that got infected and brought a workers' compensation claim for that. And I know you're sitting there saying to yourself, like, what? How does that happen? Well, how does that even proceed? How does the board even allow that? Well, this did proceed. They actually had to go into litigation and we had to uh, bring in medical experts to dispute that this uh, internal abscess could be related to the person's employment uh, working in a warehouse setting, right? So uh, we had to win a case and the, the attorney here was Leanne Youngsworth Wright, uh, who uh, based on the preponderance of the evidence, uh, which was again, medical proofs presented and cross-examination of the um, opposing parties expert physician that the abdominal wall injury, which by the way was an ingrown hair, was not causally related. So I just want to point out this case kind of stands for the proposition that even though the claimant gets these crazy assumptions that everything they bring before the board is compensable, you still have the opportunity to present defenses and you can still win if you competently defend those cases. All right, next case I want to talk about is the latches decision. I know you're sitting there saying latches, Greg, what is that? Well, latches is a legal doctrine that essentially says if you wait too long uh, to bring a claim that it prejudices the other party because you waited so long that the court has the right under a theory of fairness or equity to throw that claim out. So that's what latches stands for. It's an equitable doctrine that can be applied in a civil litigation context. Now, we're in a workers' compensation context, right? The statute is written and the presumptions are created to be favorable to the claimant. So in this case, the claimant waited, filed an employee claim form, filed a C3, but then waited more than five years to pursue their medical benefits and lost time benefits. And we raised the argument that this should not be allowed. And basically the argument is like, that's too long to wait. We've been prejudiced. And the opposing party said, but wait a second, under the workers' compensation law in New York, once a case is established, it remains open for 18 years. That's the reopener period in a New York workers' compensation case, if you didn't know that. 18 years from the date of establishment to reopen that claim or change uh, any of the terminations in that case. Well, our attorney, and it was Misha Powell uh, in our complex claims group, uh, who predominantly defends construction cases, said, wait a second, I'm going to argue latches. I'm going to argue you've waited so long. You've let, let five years go by, 60 months elapse between the filing of the claim and then pursuing the claim. And that's so long that it's impossible for us to defend the case. And guess what? The Workers' Compensation Court agreed with us. The Workers' Compensation Board uh, said, yes, we're going to apply this fairness doctrine, this doctrine of latches, and we're going to throw this case out. So that's something for you to look at and say, well, that's a really rare outcome um, uh, to point to. All right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, how about those cases where uh, you just get this huge high schedule and you look at it and you go, wait, how is this possible? So in this case, um, Lori Vassar Rock versus Georgia Pacific, uh, the claimant had a knee injury and the two physicians that examined her, both on the behalf of the employer and the behalf of the carrier, uh, I'm sorry, the claimant, came to very different conclusions. Well, the judge of compensation, as you know, in workers' compensation proceedings, 
does not have to simply accept the findings of one or the other experts. The judge can craft their own opinion, and that's what they did in this case. The judge um, applied, we argued, the disability standards incorrectly and gave the claimant a high finding scheduled loss of use because the claimant had chondromalacia patella. Now, there has been case law, matter of blue, which has determined that the issue of chondromalacia patella should not increase the scheduled loss of use awards. So defense counsel Tomer Lair of this office uh, made the argument and went and filed the appeal and showed how the judge had applied the wrong disability standard. And as you can see by reading that decision, the review board dramatically reduced the scheduled loss of use, which resulted in a very small amount of money moving, almost no money moving. So that's a really great outcome for a client. And the real takeaway here is just because there's been a determination on a scheduled loss of use, that's not the end of the game. There's still some moves to be made. So don't give up on those cases. All right, next case I'm going to talk about is a Section 29.5 violation. What is Section 29.5? Well, Section 29 is the section of the statute that uh, allows for reimbursement to the employer or the carrier from the proceeds of any third-party award that the claimant is successful in pursuing. It says essentially that we're entitled to recover everything that we've paid in the workers' compensation court, uh, 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 except for, of course, attorney's fees and costs of litigation in that civil action. And there's a, a subsection to Section 29 which says that the claimant does not have the right to settle uh, a civil action without our consent, without our uh, agreeing that they can go and do that. And what this prevents is the claimant going out and accepting a small settlement or a small amount of money that only protects or takes care of the claimant. That's called settling around or cramming down the lien. Those are the some things that can happen to us. So Section 29.5 says they cannot settle a case unless we specifically consent or authorize that settlement. Well, that's what happens in this case, um, Tosell versus Blue Bucket. In Tosell, the claimant did not properly get our consent. Uh, they did not ask for our permission to settle the civil action, and instead they just went out and accepted the settlement in it. And then turned around to us and said, well, sorry, them the breaks. Uh, we got as much as money as we could get. And we said, well, that's cute, but you failed to follow the rules, and because of that, we're going to raise a Section 29.5 violation. Now, what happens when you win, when you argue, judge, we did not get, they did not uh, ask for our consent, we did not give our consent, and they settled anyway. What happens is, what happened in this case? First, the claimant is disqualified from receiving any future workers' compensation benefits, and we get repaid the full amount of our lien. So that's an amazing outcome for this client, uh, Blue Bucket Group. Uh, they are, A, not going to be exposed for any future workers' compensation benefits, and B, we get all of our money back. So great outcome, and that was done by Lois attorney Hannah Bacon. Next case is a fun case because it involves a failure to disclose prior injuries. In Blackburn versus Sodexo, the claimant failed to disclose prior injuries uh, really to some of the same body parts. And this is a claimant who had a long history of many prior injuries. And again, I included a copy of this decision so you can read it uh, and take a look at it. A lot of injuries to a lot of body parts, um, went to the treating physicians and just consistently over and over again told physician after a physician, I have never had any other prior injuries, particularly involving the shoulder. Just kept saying, I never had a shoulder injury, ever had a shoulder injury. And we were able to find through discovery using the ISO, Prior Claims Index Bureau reporting, 
uh, that the claimant not only had a prior shoulder, but had some pretty extensive treatment for that body part. Uh, so Lois attorney Jessica Blydenberg um, was able to argue that, Judge, um, this is concealment, and this is such a specific and flagrant concealment that, Judge, this should amount to a fraud finding. So Section 114A is the fraud section of the workers' compensation statute. Well, the workers' compensation judge agreed and said, you know, uh, this concealment was not, you know, actually the trial judge disagreed with us, but the uh, appeals board agreed with us and said this was not a minor concealment. This was consistent, told many physicians, including treating physicians, uh, that they had never been injured before. And that's clearly a lie. And so for that reason, they reversed the trial judge and then uh, found that the claimant had violated uh, Section 114A and was a fraud. That's a great finding because under Section 114A, once the claimant's been found a fraud, you are no longer responsible for workers' compensation, temporary disability, or pregnancy benefits. So that's a great outcome. Last case to talk about is a labor market attachment uh, argument made in a loss of wage earning capacity award. So this was a little more complex. The case uh, decided in September is Viola versus Multiphase Electrical. In that case, uh, the claimant had a permanent residual disability that was partial in nature. And that's called the loss of wage earning capacity disability. There was injuries to the mid-back in this case. Uh, those are compensated in terms of loss of wage earning capacity in this jurisdiction. So the claimant received an award or was ready to receive an award uh, for permanent partial disability. Our attorney made two arguments. First, the disability should be less than what the judge found because this person has tremendous transferable skills. He had worked as a, a union electrician for 30 years. He had prior experience working as a supervisor of electricians. He had great transferable skills, including the skill of being able to use a computer, smartphone, having email, was literate, numerate, all of those things. So for all those reasons, we argued uh, the overall um, wage earning capacity diminishment is not that big of a deal. This is a 30-year electrician with a minor injury to his low back, uh, mid-back, excuse me, uh, should be able to transition into a supervisory role. There shouldn't be an impact on his earning capacity. And then we made a second argument, which is, and even if you disagree with that first argument, they're no longer attached to the labor market. He's not out there doing a prima facie, good uh, faith look for a job within his restrictions. Well, uh, the Workers' Compensation Board agreed with those arguments on appeal and said, you know what, we are going to reduce the loss of wage earning capacity award for the reasons you argued on the record. And we're also going to find that this claimant is not even looking for a job consistent with those skills that we know he has. And so for that reason, they both reduced his award, which is really rare, and also found no labor market attachment, which means we're not paying any money moving forward. And I'm sorry I left his name off the slide, but that's Dan Gillis from our complex claims group. So great job on that, Dan. All right, so that's a little review of some of the cases. And I tried to pick, again, a case that was in every different uh, type of um, posture and all different sorts of outcomes. Uh, let's talk about statutory changes that are going to come into effect in 2024. And in two weeks, uh, we're going to have a big change in workers' compensation. The first change in like 20 plus years uh, to the minimum rate of compensation. The minimum rate is now going to increase from $150 a week to $275 a week, effective January 1st. So that's the first time that's changed. Then in 2025, the minimum rate will change and rise again to $325 a week. And then thereafter, the minimum rate will increase each year as it will be pegged or 
uh, will follow the state average weekly wage, and it will be statutorily one-fifth of the state average weekly wage. So that's something that's going to happen, and we're looking forward to that because that's going to really change the way we litigate some of these cases and will change the valuation of many of them. The employers and carriers that are going to be most affected by this are those with uh, you know, less than full employments, meaning working less than 40 hours a week, so earning less money per week. You're going to start to see an incentivization for those uh, claimants earning less to go out on temporary total disability uh, because of that uh, higher minimum rate. All right, let's look at some predictions. Um, I want to talk about what I think is going to happen in 2024 and what you should be ready for. And I think there's two things, uh, two big predictions that I'm going to make this year. Uh, one I just threw in here because um, it just happened on Friday. Okay, so the first prediction I'm going to make is that the board sent an email on Friday, uh, the Workers' Compensation Board in New York, uh, to all defense counsel and all insurance counsel uh, saying, hey, we're doing this thing and we're going to do it soon, so get ready. The board sent an email saying that they are, are doing a new initiative to index more cases that had previously not been indexed. What they said is that every case where the employees filled out a claim form or the employer has completed a first report of injury and there is any medical will now get an index. So oftentimes cases where just a FROI is filed or just a C3 and the C3 is filed, for example, at the time they first get medical care, those don't get indexed. Those simply get assembled, which doesn't trigger any obligation on the behalf of the employer or carrier to file any pleadings that could prejudice them in workers' compensation court. But in indexing is different. In indexing of a workers' compensation case under Section 25 of the statute triggers a requirement that the workers' compensation carrier or employer file responsive pleadings a FROI 04 denial type if they wish to deny or controvert the case. And in fact, if they do not file that within 25 days of the date of indexing, defenses listed in the statute, which include the defense of not my employee, never worked here, no coverage, so legal defenses, will be barred. Okay, so this is a scary and dangerous thing, particularly for my clients uh, that are in the, um, uh, the insured world, who are insuring little mom and pops, and sometimes the mom and pops are filing a FROI or are filing a claim or signing a claim form, and they don't even transmit it to the insurance carrier. Uh, now you've got to be on the lookout for any indexing that comes through from the Workers' Compensation Board and be prepared to assert your defenses. And, of course, we're here to help you with that. So that's one huge thing that just happened on Friday that we all have to be aware of. Uh, the next thing is, and, and the second thing that I'm going to talk about, is the impact of large language models on the practice. Uh, currently, there's no judicial ethics opinions about the use of ChatGPT or other AI. Uh, the New York State Bar Association just convened a task force in September to start looking at it. So far, no reports from them. Uh, there's exactly one reported decision on this, which is a New York decision, uh, which is the case that I talked about um, with this group uh, several months ago. Uh, that's the Mata versus Avianca case, and that's where the attorney, the plaintiff's attorney, was relying on ChatGPT to write legal briefs. And after the uh, the judge's clerk discovered, hey, they're just making up case names. These cases that are cited as precedent, as authority, don't actually exist, right? And that's been blamed on the fact that ChatGPT 3.0 and 3.5 did hallucinate. It just make stuff up. It just made stuff up. Uh, 
I think that this is going to be one of the biggest areas uh, for us to navigate and could be one of the greatest moments of benefit for insurers and self-insured employers and defense counsel ever in the history of our practice. And if you have not been fooling around with ChatGPT yet or getting involved with what's being developing on the AI side, I think this is going to be a tremendous boon to us. It's going to be a great help. Um, and let me explain exactly why. Uh, first, uh, from the aspect of summarizing, reviewing medicals, um, reviewing transcripts, coming up with summaries of transcripts, it does an amazing job. Uh, we're now at the level with ChatGPT4 where these large language models are doing a great job, a really reliably great job. I wouldn't say that a year ago with the old model, 3.0 and 3.5, but at 4.0 models, you're seeing really amazing results, really great results. So for things that where you would consider chores, reading a thousand pages of medicals uh, with the purpose of finding all of the times, for example, the claimant tells the physical therapist that they were able to do a personal activity, recreational activity, a social activity, right? A classic use of reviewing subpoenaed records or going through a thousand pages of physical therapy notes. You know that how the physical therapy treatment progressed because you've seen the results of it. But were you often looking at the meta information in these subpoena responses or these investigations we're doing? And it's been a tremendous uh, cost in terms of uh, paralegal time and paralegal attention. Uh, these are the kinds of investigations you can't do with a control F, right? You can't do a control F. Uh, find me every time he talks about uh, his personal life. But you can with these large language models. You can take a huge document of a thousand pages, put it in the large language model and say, find me every time that they talk about uh, going out on a sailboat and or doing any recreational activity or social activity. And it will do that and it will do an amazing job. So it's going to really reduce the chores. Now, the problems with that and the problems are very significant, which is these large language models, the really useful ones, are not proprietary. And so taking client information or taking claimant information particularly health records, transmitting it to a third party for their processing review and then getting the results back, that's the problem. In the last several weeks, uh, Microsoft has now released products that run within the controlled confidential domain of the individual tenant within those Microsoft products, which means that that data is not being transferred elsewhere which means those confidential issues are starting to get addressed. So you should start to expect some pretty amazing results from this, and you should be demanding it. And that's something uh, strategically that we're looking at as a firm is how we can capitalize on this. I would love to reduce the amount of chore work that my staff is doing that doesn't, you know, add any value. It's just someone has to go through all these records and summarize all this information. So that's a great thing. The second thing I'll talk about in terms of large language models is starting to use it to develop and do some legal research, and particularly summarization of legal research. It can really help reduce the time and effort spent on that with some great results. And I've been comparing the results. If you look at what kind of results you were getting from ChatGPT even a year ago, I would say untrustworthy, um, unreliable, not uh, up to human standards, not even close. Now with the most recent language models, I've seen a real improvement in uh, what ChatGPT can do. And the last thing I'm going to talk about is just doing simple things like presentations, uh, doing some simple things that do take time and attention, but being able to offload that 
on Friday, we went over the 2024 strategic plan for the firm. And I had 30 slides to go through with 120 of our employees. And before I did it, I said, you know what? Uh, this is kind of like a boring strategic plan presentation. Let's have ChatGPT pizzazz this up. And I had it rewrite the presentation to make it more engaging, a little more funny, and a little bit more uh, exciting. And it did an amazing job. I got actually good reviews from a strategic plan presentation, which I don't think ever happens, right? Maybe everybody was hung over from the firm Christmas party the night before, uh, but uh, I thought it went over a lot better. So this is really starting to become a more effective tool for us. And we are absolutely looking into how best to deploy this as a tool. I think this is gonna save clients money. I think it's gonna save uh, attorneys and paraprofessionals stress. And I think it's gonna result in better case handling overall. So this is something I'm excited about and we'll definitely be talking about this year. And I'm also expecting at some point, the judiciary is gonna wake up to this and we're gonna start getting some rulemaking around it. We're gonna start getting some rules of professional conduct. They're gonna address the confidentiality issues and we're gonna get some boundaries and some guidelines as to how best to deploy this. So that's what I'm excited about that's upcoming. All right, I've talked enough. Let's go to any questions and answers that anybody has about anything that I've brought up today. I'm hoping that we have some good ones. Okay, Hillary says, is there a presentation or is this simply a call? Yikes, uh-oh. I'm hoping that you can see me. I do have a monitor here in the studio and it seems like it's coming through on video. So hopefully uh, you can see me and uh, it's working. But that looks to be, okay, Hillary says, no, I still cannot. Well, I'm sorry, that's strange. Inside here, and uh, I can see us, we are we are projecting something. She says, but Greg, I can hear you, exclamation point. Great, uh, good to know, <laughs> uh, but uh, there's that. All right, uh, so it might be something on your end. Sorry, Hillary, about that. Um, for everybody else, I don't see any other questions popping up. Uh, for clients, I'm hoping that I will see you on Tuesday night at our client uh, annual uh, party, which is I'm really looking forward to. Some other ways to learn uh, here with us. Uh, of course, our handbooks can be downloaded right from our website. You can subscribe to our podcast. Uh, my partner, Chris Major's podcast, uh, amazing on uh, subrogation issues and reimbursement issues. If you want to level up to the next level, I'm going to point out my other partner, Christian Cisson's podcast. It's called Third Fridays, and it's a really high-level look. You, I would call that a real 201-level look at what's going on in workers' compensation in New York. So. He had just did a great uh, podcast on last Friday, which you know was great to listen to, uh, and I had a lot of fun with that. So I hope everyone has a great end of your year. I hope it's strong. I hope you have had a wonderful Hanukkah and you're having a great Christmas. I can't uh, wait to get away to see my mom. I'm going down to Florida for Christmas week with my fam. Can't wait to see my mom. I hope everybody has a great week. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, and I'll see you in January, everybody. Okay, uh, have a great week.